0: The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me?
1: Amanda Marie Maples.
0: Now, you're a doctor, correct? So you're actually Dr. Amanda Maples?
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah. And they they care about that here in Germany. I haven't used it so much (laughs) as I have in the last year here or a few months, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah. It's very important. Uh, Titles are very important in Europe, for sure. Like manager is one that I've noticed. MGR is very popular here. Your background. So, you know, how did you you are a curator of African art as your primary interest, correct?
1: That's right. Yes
0: okay how so what was your childhood like that led you up to the path of becoming even a curator much less a curator of something as specific as African art
1: right I get that question a lot and I even wonder how the heck I ended up here <laughs> so I grew up in rural North Carolina on the eastern side of it and I didn't know anything about Africa let alone anthropology or even art history you know I went to a, a fairly... I'm from a fairly poor county of North Carolina, so the education wasn't super strong. So I didn't really know much of what was out there until I got to college. And that's when I first started taking anthropology. But I will say, when I was a kid, I was in the in the gifted program. So I got bussed over to an elementary school a couple of times a week where I got to really explore some of my own interests. And that was a really amazing experience at so such a such young age. It's funny that the entire school system only had one school for all of us. Like we would all come in from different schools into this one program. But at that time, I was really interested in archaeology. Like I wanted to be a paleontologist specifically. that's that's why I was interested in. And I don't think I got too far off the mark. I ended up going towards archaeology in college. and then I went to South Africa to get my field school in archaeology. That was in 2001 to date myself a little bit. I think that's when I started gravitating towards the continent and learning much more about a history that has been obscured from our educational system for, for so many reasons and in so many ways, including that of the diaspora. So yeah, I, I wanted to be a paleontologist and I wanted to be an archeologist and then I ended up l- working with art. So it's not too far away though because objects are so central to museum practice and to archeology span obviously. So for me, one of the most amazing things that happened when I was in South Africa doing that dig, it was a Middle Stone Age site, was touching an object that had not been touched by any other human for a thousand years. And that just blew my mind. So, you know, being able to connect to one object like that tangibly to tell you a story or to excite your interest, that to me was really powerful. And I think that's when I started gravitating even more towards museums. And I just sort of ended up in African art. We can talk more about that, but I, I guess that's my more early experience and how I kind of I meandered towards African art, if you will.
0: Well, I meandered when I was young as well. I studied with a Cherokee shaman at one point. I was uh, I did an archaeological dig out in the Anasazi area, mm. and I've also and and I went to University of Iowa with the intention of being a Native American studies major. And then I got there and they said, oh, yeah, we're just starting that program. It'll take another like four to six years before you can get a degree. And I'm like, fuck oh. it. <laughs> so, so, but it, I mean, I, I was as interested in psychology and Native American studies and all the other stuff like that, but but I ended up not going into it. So like, so, so and, and I don't, you know, for the listener, to be clear about this, you're a white girl uh, from rural North Carolina <laughs> who has chosen to study african art do you have any um people that question that those choices
1: you're getting right in there i love it yeah absolutely <laughs> It's uh... <laughs> I am a white woman trying to present the arts of Africa to a primarily white audience at the North Carolina Museum of Art. So yes, I it's something I think about very deeply and especially the last year or two when museums, museum practitioners, curators are all coming increasingly more and more under fire for the hand that we've had in normalizing cultural stereotypes for the sort of single stories that we inevitably tell. Because in, trying to show the arts of Africa you collapse identity you sort of flatten it out right so i i think about that all the time and i'm i'm I am being questioned and i teach so i teach at unc chapel hill i've taught at uc santa cruz where i got my phd there's always at least one if not up to a handful particularly in california of especially young women that question me and they give me side eye when a white woman comes in and goes guess what you're going to learn about african art from a white lady i think it's it's a tricky position to be in because this wasn't a problem when I started studying African art. And it only has been increasingly problematic in the last year or two, of course, with the, the protests, with this kind of looking at social justice and equitable representation, et cetera. It's all right, it's all spot on. And decolonization is a big effort that I'm part of. But do I have to abandon the 15, 16 years of work and this powerful art form that, that means so much to me? I don't think so, but it also betrays a much larger problem in art history, which is only, a, There's, I think it's like 8% or something really small of curators across the board, not just in African art, are of color. So it's a much bigger problem than just in African art. It's also essentializing and problematic to think that because someone is of color or of African descent, that they care about African art. So I think that there's multiple problems that run a lot deeper and also the problem is about access. So if you need a PhD to become a curator like me, are those gilded halls of academia open to everyone? Not so much. And similarly museums have been places of elitism. That also means that not everyone feels welcome or would even want to work in a museum. So we need to change things at a much much deeper level. So I talk about all of that very openly. And I think I'm at a position where I feel like rather than being the one voice that's representing an entire continent worth of art over thousands of years, which is already fucking bonkers to think about. We should have many, many, many people trying to think about African art in any single institution, but you know, that's pie in the sky. (sighs) I, like I said, I talk about it very openly and I I, I think of myself as a conduit rather than that single voice. So if I'm just the person in this position I have the opportunity then to invite as many other voices as possible into the gallery space, into the conversation, so that I can take a step back. And that's what needs to happen. And I also believe strongly in co-curatorial practice. And what I mean by that is inviting people from the community in to have a voice to write the labels to work with me, or in working with curators on the continent, for example, so I hope things change. I think this, you know, crossed arm curatorial look—that's like I know everything about this art and I'm—I'm I'm the person you should come to. I think that needs to be dismantled a little bit, and we need to think more pluralistically about these voices. So I hope that that sort of answers that and
0: makes sense. Sure. I mean, I was teaching in the United Arab Emirates for six years, and I was teaching primarily Muslim women. Um, about art and it was very interesting sort of having to learn as much as i could about the regional stuff so that it wasn't just me as a white male american going into the uae and basically teaching them about the history of american art and the american types of art and styles of art but also trying to be culturally sensitive and also sort of culturally inclusive of the region Uh, was it was a sort of an eye-opening experience for me because i hadn't had to do that before because i had only taught in america
1: right Yeah, and in that, you were recognizing your positionality, right? So I have to do the same kind of thing. Yeah, I'm a white woman with this kind of education. But yeah, I did come from rural North Carolina. I did have a much more pluralistic experience growing up because it was a military town. So we had people from all over and a very broad group of friends. It wasn't just a bunch of other white girls, (laughs) basically. But I think recognizing that positionality is really important and how you've gotten there. So the fact that you were a white male, you know, teaching... Muslim women, and I, I'm a, a white woman talking about African art and working with African scholars and curators. I think that's important. But what's also equally important is that we have many different voices and that we can recognize a personality, but also include those other ones. So I'm just saying like, we couldn't have just one kind of person always talking about African art. That doesn't make sense.
0: And you brought up an interesting point, which is that like the basically the access to the education that allows people to become curators has also sort of a barrier to entry, because I mean, just the nature of getting a PhD is expensive, oftentimes, uh, and and also takes you know exponentially more work than a lot of people are willing to put into it. Like I still don't have a PhD, but I'm a practicing artist. I'm not a student. I don't know what academicy kind of thing but scholar? so like the scholar that's a great word <laughs> scholar I'll go with that so I'm not a scholar <laughs> as you can tell by my vocabulary <laughs> but
1: you don't need a piece of paper to tell you you're a scholar
0: i i can tell you i don't need a piece of paper to tell me i'm not a scholar also <laughs> come on if you listen to the podcast i am not a scholar i I swear like a sailor and i'm as angry at the system as much as i am a participant in the system so
1: i've got a potty mouth too it's cool i I swear like a sailor
0: (laughs) yeah i mean it's tough the the, i mean the whole but because like okay you want more uh, representation, uh, you know regional representation. So I mean, I, it's not even about just African art. It's also about South American art mm-hmm. and Asian art and all the other, mm-hmm. you know, underrepresented you know uh, curators uh, of specific sort of regional stuff. Mm-hmm. It, there there's just not a lot of opportunities for them because, as I said, like for me, it's about the expense of an education, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it's also just sort of not, culture maybe it's not culturally something that the people are like I want my child to grow up to be a curator <laughs>
1: you know? yeah no that's what I was saying I, I didn't even knew, know that my job existed until well into my college career so already that shows you if you if you don't know to go towards that you can't have those building blocks you know it, and also just yeah the access it's so it's so expensive So if you think about, especially in the United States, how much money it costs just to go get a four year degree and then even realize that you need a master's and also a PhD to become a curator. It's just, it's not available to everyone. So I think we also need to recognize different kinds of knowledges and different kinds of paths towards becoming a scholar. Like there are other ways of learning about art or learning about objects that don't necessarily mean a PhD. That's gonna open up some really guarded canons if i can put it that way
0: you can put it whatever way you would like that's fine (laughs) well it's tough i mean okay like then when i think back to it like when i think about it like you chose okay your your title says african art africa is a continent Uh i mean like that's a huge topic you know like even saying american art somehow Uh seems smaller than african that's like saying asian i mean that's a massive many cultures many regions many dialects many tribes many everything like this mm-hmm. um it, i would imagine so like i mean i would i'm sitting here sort of with your your cv open and stuff and i see things like sierra leone and senegalese gold jewelry like so so you have some more specific interests than like the whole continent
1: yeah you have to that's the other thing is you know you not only had to go through a fuck ton of work in schools and colleges and universities and getting your degree, you also have to dial in a really specific focus. That's what academia wants you to do. is find your tiny little niche that only four other people talk about. And then you write your dissertation on that. And, and I think that also needs to get taken apart a little bit. And I have noticed more and more lately that there's a lot more global views, transnationalisms, multiculturalisms, kind of thinking about different kinds of art across time and space rather than dialing in on this one culture, for example. Like that's a very constructed notion of what quote unquote African arts are or American arts are. And that's the other thing that's really at play here is that in museums especially, American art has come to mean a particular thing that excludes a lot of other kinds of artistic expressions or people of particular colors or genders or whatnot. So the same thing happens with African art. This canon has been constructed from a very particular positionality and that is of, of the global north and it doesn't often include what maybe the global south might c- construct as the canon of quote-unquote African art. And, and you're absolutely right when I the first week of class when I'm teaching introduction or actually it's called survey of African art. And I tell them that is a misnomer. That's impossible. There is absolutely no way we can look at even, even begin to scratch the surface of thousands of years of artistic expression on this giant ass continent. So guess what? Survey throw that out the window. We're going to try to look at a few different things to look at some broad themes and try to understand just some of the the artistic practices that have happened on the continent. So, yeah, that is it is so fucking huge. There's just no way.
0: I remember in undergrad, my uh, one of my professors, the art history professor, he specialized in Etruscan mirrors. And so he spent like (laughs) we were doing the overview of art history, but he spent like four weeks on just Etruscan mirrors. And I know far more than any human needs to know about Etruscan mirrors because he made us learn all this stuff. I don't know why, but again, it goes back to that sort of uber specification Mm -hmm. in in the higher education and academia that I think it may be, I mean, while it's great. And I love that his knowledge exists. I don't feel that he necessarily needed to put it into his classroom. So, like, that's a whole different issue. But, yeah. but, but you brought up a topic that I think was sort of interesting. Okay. So, like, in America, there are, it's, I'm, I'm probably going to get some chastised for this, but I'm going to say oh. it anyways. <laughs> that, like, the, there's the, the, the formal art world, which generally falls under uh, educated artists so artists of some uh, have gone to some schooling let's say and then there's sort of a separation to the outsider artists mm-hmm. and they are treated very differently and they're looked at very differently i don't know anything about african art so i'm coming to this as a as a complete idiot so please educate me in africa is there sort of a separation of that like is there a, a educated artist or is it more um, sort of outsider non trained sort of uh, i don't even know what like Indigenous art, like what's what's the hierarchy of the more uh, admired and respected works?
1: I think you're actually hinting at something that is at play in terms of why African, quote unquote, or African-American and diaspora arts aren't as well represented in museum spaces in the global north. And that is that it's all thought of as outsider art when you're look, looking at it from, from the global north. Because... Uh, you know in in school we're taught classical arts or renaissance arts and modernists and all of that from a very eurocentric perspective so let's let's look at that but also set it aside for a second because i think there's a, there's some problems there but even within africa of course there are schools there are trained artists there are professional artists there there are ones that have studio there there are ones that move all over the world as well get training in europe come back to africa i mean we we get all the kinds, but then there's also masquerade artists that are still working very much for a local community, but are contemporary practicing artists, as far as I'm concerned, but they don't get included in the contemporary galleries, for example. And they don't have that international recognition because they're not working within that art market proper.
0: Okay, wait, go back one step. I wanna Mm -hmm. know a little bit more about your knowledge and specifications of like your interests. Do you, are you more sort of studying and, and, and working with historical African art or <laughs> contemporary African art?
1: Both. You can't exclude one from the other.
0: Damn it. I was looking for something simple and clean. Okay, Sorry. go
1: on. <laughs> that's one of the things I harp on constantly in class, in my lectures, in, in the work that I do in the gallery, is that this, this binary, this pervasive binary of the traditional versus the contemporary has been set up, but that's really a northern perspective. You know Euro American perspective. I think that's you know masquerade, for example. That's specifically what I've studied for a lot of my career, and that has been thought of as this village, rural thing of the past, this traditional art form. But it's it may be traditional in some ways because it is pulling from an, an interpretation of the past, but very much hyper contemporary because it's always related to whatever's happening at any given moment. It, it is really responding to politics or social injustices or trying to raise the finances to, to have something happen for, like, to educate the youth and the community. Like, it's always related to the present. So, that's where that, that pervasive historic or traditional versus contemporary gets problematic and in many other ways. But also, I, I wanna note that I think contemporary arts become much more relevant, especially to younger audiences. So, it's one of the ways that I get at historic because a lot of these artists are interested in the past. They are interested in that experience and they reinterpret it in really compelling ways. And if you can get that hook, then you can open up that whole world of learning about what might be boring initially, historic or traditional arts. So, and I think there's a lot, we have to do more heavy lifting in terms of African arts because we don't get a lot of that training in in America, especially, or in in Europe. You just don't learn about it. So, you have to do a little bit more explanation. And again, I use contemporary art and artists and experiences to try to get at some of the, that. Does that make sense? Well,
0: well, when I think of African art, now c- keep in mind, again, stupid, has mm-hmm. no knowledge of African art. I'm an idiot. So, I'm coming at with, with as though I'm a, like, you know, a child. When I think of African art, I think that there's a great direct lineage like if you saw a piece that's made today in africa you could literally say and they were influenced by this and these people and these tribes and these previous you know civilizations whatever So there's a very direct line that you can really clearly see the history and the influences of african contemporary african art through the history unlike let's say European or American, like there's a lot of random things that come up, you know, movements of this that sort of change the whole paradigm of whatever people are looking at kind of thing. But it, I feel like Africa is more consistent through the the decades and millennia. Am I wrong? Please tell me.
1: If I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say wrong at all, but I think that might be a bit of an outsider perspective because there's still oh, no it's
0: completely an outsider perspective. <laughs> I have no relations to Africa whatsoever and I have minimal knowledge of it. So I'm I'm trying to be schooled here. So teach me.
1: I mean there's a there's definitely nuances and specificity that are so gradient and so fine grained. Like you can't you can't even begin to understand any given you know, art form. Unless you're like there for a long time and study that trajectory, I, I think it's really hard to talk about that. But again, it's just so fucking enormous that it's it's hard to to talk broad strokes like that.
0: Okay, can you do one, one small favor? I yeah. want some definitions. So you use the term diaspora. Now I hear hmm. that word in many different contexts. I hear about like ecological stuff. I hear about arts related. So like, define how you're using diaspora.
1: Well, originally it was specifically related to the Jewish movements, to Jewish people. And much it's much, much more now actually related to African, people of African descent that are dispersed all over the world. Primarily, of course, through the transatlantic slave trade and the other movements or force or other of people. Diaspora is, I'd say, much more related to African descent peoples now, and I, I often pluralize it. So or sometimes I've seen it capitalized, so diaspora with a capital D or diasporas, because they are all over and they're constantly in flux, very fluid, people are moving all the time. So now if you apply that to the arts and think about how fluid arts and ideas are, you might begin to think, to challenge some of the things that you just said about this kind of being able to see the, the history of any particular art form in Africa, for example, that it's going to always be relational and changing and moving and being influenced by other outside forces. You know, Africa, a lot of, especially coastal African peoples have been in contact with others for centuries. So you have to include all of that as part of African history. So Africa is not the elsewhere of the West. It has been part of the West and the global world for a long, long time. So I think isolating Africa as its own thing is already going to be problematic.
0: Okay. The other thing I wanted to know more about masquerade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we talking like masquerade balls? Are we talking mm-hmm. like Halloween or are we talking like tribal dance masks and this kind of stuff? Like wh- give me some context, some understanding of what, cause on your CV it also says urban masquerade. Mm. So like, <laughs> give me a, give me an understanding of what that means.
1: Yes. So I, I definitely teach uh, masquerade as well because, yes, I mean, depending on who you are, your own positionality, you have a particular idea of what masquerade is. And sometimes that is, you know, a masquerade ball in Venice, for example, and you've got those beaky masks and or carnival in the Netherlands. I actually studied that for my master's, so I was very interested in masking in that context and masquerade. In, or, in or Mardi of- Gras. Yeah, Mardi Gras. I mean, Mardi Gras and carnival exists in many, many different places in the world. So masking is pretty much a global phenomenon. What I study, particularly in Sierra Leone, is a masquerade form that was invented in the city by people of multicultural descent that were all dropped into Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone, and had to find a way to get by in a really tough situation without your family, without your community to help you. So especially the youth, they had to band together as this kind of ragtag group of kids that wanted to raise the money to survive. So they start masking because that's actually a way to get money is to perform. People give you money to do that or you have to make the masquerade so the artists get the money for that. So it is very urban in nature and very specific to that history of Freetown and to that ragtag group of young kids that were coming from all over. And again, that overturns that idea that masquerade is this village thing that's related to a particular tribe, quote unquote. And I don't use that word in terms of African art in Western scholarship. If I'm in Sierra Leone, they say tribe. They say, oh, yeah, that's a Limba tribe mask or whatever masquerade performance or a Mende one. But when we're talking about it in the global north, we have to recognize the history of that word tribe as having some negative connotations. And also being fixed, so having this fixity around that term that can make it seem like something in the past that's something negative or on this sort of linear timeline of human history. So I just wanted to note that, like tribe in the North American context, which is where you're coming from and what you were trained in, is it means a different thing, and you need tribe to be legally recognized. OK, so I, I definitely talk to my students about that, about that term tribe and why we would or wouldn't use it when we're talking about African arts. <laughs> so I just wanted to note that.
0: Oh, no. Well, I lived in the Middle East and they're very tribal there as mm.
1: well. Yeah. And tribe has actually gotten this sort of renaissance. Right. So find your tribe. You know, it's it's been made a hip term these days, too. Right. I don't know. If, maybe I'm I'm, you know, I'm 41. So. I remember that being something that was happening in the last few years. Maybe it's not anymore, and I'm not cool. But
0: <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not cool at all. So like, that, not even on my radar. So mm. yeah, sure, I believe you. All right. So now I, you worked at you you technically work at the North Carolina Museum of Art. You have worked at the Smithsonian, but you're currently in Hamburg, Germany. So tell me how all that sort of shuffles together and how did that come together?
1: Yeah, all of that is correct. I'm a <laughs> bit of an overachiever. Leslie Nope is my spirit animal. So I am a curator of African art at the North Carolina Museum of Art. And I saw this, you know, I was already publishing on this idea of restitutions and reparations, which kind of circles back to some of the things we we're talking about, social justice and equitable representation and this reckoning that museums are having right now in
0: this decolonial moment.
1: And I was an writing about that.
0: that. Put it in yeah. in that. We'll come back to that.
1: Yes. So I was writing about that, about Benin Kingdom objects specifically, which is present day Nigeria. So this is a pretty, the most famous case of looting of art objects on the continent. In 1897, the British came, they took thousands of objects, they, they burned the city, they ousted the king, like they were total fuckheads. And they then sold all that stuff on the market to finance that raid. We'll put a pin in that too. I'm gonna tell you the whole history of it, but those are the most visible arts for having this conversation about restitutions and reparations. So I was writing about that because the North Carolina Museum of Art has a few, just like many American museums too, just like a whole bunch of European museums have. So I saw this position come up to work on this project called Digital Benin, which is hosted by the Mark, the Museum on the if I can say it correctly, my German pronunciation is awful. And so I threw my hat in the ring to be the research coordinator for the project. And I, I didn't think I would get the job and I did. And then I was like, oh fuck, now what do I do? Are we really moving to Germany for two years? And you know, my husband who is amazing and artist is able to come with me. You know, he's that nimble and we, we moved over here. And I was also lucky to have such a great working relationship with the chief curator at the NCMA and the deputy director and the director. And they all supported me in this endeavor. And agree that it's such an important project and such an important visible way of picking away at that restitutions reparations problem. So sorry if I'm going on too long about this, but all of that kind of background is important for all of us to realize like this is an important project. This is one of the most important things happening in African art. So I kind of dropped a lot of things I was doing. I reduced my hours with it at the NCMA and I'm juggling two jobs essentially. When I first came, I was also still teaching at UNC Chapel Hill. So it was a real, oh, it was an exhausting first few months. But that's, I think that's the long and the short of how I I got over here. And yeah, I'm managing a lot of different projects, but that's kind of how I do.
0: Okay, because I grew up in Washington, DC, so the Smithsonian was like oh, yeah. my childhood museum. So like, I love that place.
1: Oh yeah, so sorry, I forgot about that. I curated that Good As Gold Fashioning Senegalese Women exhibition for the Smithsonian. And before that, I was working on their e-museum project. So I was re- researching their collections and kind of pushing out as many of their objects into a digital platform as possible. So some of that experience also so feeds into the Digital Benin Project, which I'm working here which is digitally reassembling all those objects that I told you about that were dispersed globally. I've tracked over 4,000 objects at this point in about a hundred museums. I'm sure there'll be more, but that's where we're at right now. And it's it's a big job to talk to that many museums, that many staff work with that many objects and try to get them all into one database. But I have an amazing team that I'm working with too that I, I highly respect. The Smithsonian was also a big place. I mean, we all grew up hoping to go to the Smithsonian, right? If you were a museum person at all. And it's such an amazing asset for our people, for our American experience, right?
0: <laughs> oh, no, I literally grew up in the in the Smithsonian. Like, my, my mother worked there when I was in, like, intermediate oh. school and stuff. So, like, I l- literally did. Like, I remember at the end of intermediate school like my mother would be like okay take the metro and meet me at the at the air and space museum and like yeah. so like I literally grew up there. So yeah I love I love the Smithsonian.
1: We grew up driving the 5 hours to go to the Smithsonian when we could.
0: Yeah, no, it was 5 miles from where I grew up.
1: Oh, I would live again in DC in a heartbeat. I I really loved it there working at the Smithsonian. I, it was like a dream. Every day I was so just like I can't believe I fucking work here. And The staff at the National Museum of African Art are are family. I still work closely with them. I'm actually working on another exhibition with the Smithsonian right now. It's tentatively entitled New Masks Now, and we're working with individual contemporary artists that work on masquerades. So some of those things that I was talking about are very much going to be turned into an exhibition with a publication. and, And thinking about these artists are, are individuals that are not recognized in that contemporary art canon, but are very much making waves and, and making amazing art that is globally related and is moving around. So I'm working with three other scholars, Hervé Yumbi, who's Cameroonian, Jordan Fenton, and Lisa Homan are all the scholars working on the project and I'm the lead curator. And again, it's just another fantastic way that the Smithsonian is is sort of supporting this new research that's happening in this direction that we need to be moving.
0: Okay, so that leads to going back to that pin that we put in on the whole sort of issue of reparations and what is it, re. restitutions restitutions okay so i i mean i've heard these conversations for decades about like basically how people should all the museums of the europe's and america's should be returning their stuff to the native lands that they stole these things from
1: yes and they should
0: okay well that that was sort of the leading question was like and where do you fall on this position
1: yes restitutions reparations yes Digital Benin is not directly doing that. We are sort of providing the opportunity for those requests to be made by stakeholder communities. We do not, as a project, take that stance. However, I, as a personal individual scholar and museum practitioner and curator, do very much support that circulation and a, a larger, broader notion of circulation of objects. So, of course, I'm very focused on African art ones. This is not That's not the the only way this is happening, this conversation is happening right now. But what I will say is I I have been talking to a lot of people, interviewing, publishing, thinking about these global circulations and the return of objects. And it's not such a, it's not that simple, and it's not a one-way movement. So I think what has been told to me is also the problem is that we have some of the greatest treasures of Africa outside of Africa, in Europe, in America, right? But it's not like any of the African museums have some of the greatest treasures from America to display. So we need to be thinking more broadly about the circulation and having a more global representative of treasures and the greatest arts everywhere for people to have that experience, to have that education. But also the most important treasures should be returned to the African continent so that young people, children, young artists, that stakeholder community can have access to their own important histories. So like we wouldn't take the Liberty Bell and send it somewhere else, but we need that in America. We have our own treasures that we would never let go. So we need to give those back and they are outside of the continent, absolutely. But at the same time, a lot of these communities want to be represented. They're very proud of their heritage and their history. And these histories that are so violent like the Benin Kingdom raid by the British, that should not be forgotten, that should be talked about. So you have these sort of ambassadors that can still live in different museums to talk about that history. But if you're looking at the hundreds of objects that the British Museum has or that other museums have, I don't wanna, I shouldn't probably list too many, it's tipped in the wrong direction. So they have a lot more to give back, basically. They they don't need so many as the ambassadors is what I'm saying.
0: Well the British Museum is sort of the lightning rod with the like the Elgin marbles yeah. and a bunch of other things that they you know they're sort of being pressured to give back so but, but I mean for that matter the Louvre I mean technically then the Louvre should give like the Mona Lisa back to Italy and like I mean there's all kinds this is I mean this is not just a Africa versus Europe and America thing because I mean there's even things with like uh, the World War II the the Nazis taking things and how those should be returned and mm-hmm. all. so I mean this is not a singular conversation about yeah. Africa this is a I mean but it's the question of like you know should art of a of a of a geographical location only be in that geographical location like I again yeah. i grew up with smithsonians so like mm-hmm. i absolutely loved that when i went into the smithsonian even though it's an american museum i could see stuff from europe and asia and africa and south america and central america i mean like i could see the history of the craft or the art or whatever from throughout the world you know i could go up to the met and see the egyptian stuff and i mean there's countless examples of how the the a museum that has a wide breadth of world artifacts, enhances the museum. So like, should it become a bit more nationalistic? Is so like, you know, the, the works of artists from sh- the history of Sierra Leone should only be in Sierra Leone? I mean, there shouldn't there be mm-hmm. some sharing and of the world experiences around the different museums in the world?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm getting at, is that we should be sharing much more meaningfully in, in a more equitable way. And I think that's precisely what you're saying. Like, why would only you get to have that experience growing up in D.C., where you get to see the arts all over the world and be inspired? I mean, that's that's why I ended up working so hard tirelessly for African arts or, or to talk about them, because it blows my mind. And and I think it's really important for us all as developing humans and young people to see the way that other people think across time and space and other cultural sort of knowledges and how it is very different, but that difference is important. And and you learn more about yourself by seeing those differences, if that makes sense. So why would we only have that experience? Why is that not more equitably accessible on the continent or in South America or where else? So I think, and there are museums, that's another misguided thought is that there aren't museums in Africa. Absolutely, there are. There's a lot of them. But I don't think, like like you were saying, that we should only have Sierra Leonean art in Sierra Leone. I think that we should have all different kinds of representative arts all over the world for us to have these great educational experiences. But at the same time, we have to talk about this imperial history of museums, because that is part and parcel of the way that we present other cultures. So it it is essentializing and it is problematic. And so, you know, at the same time as I say, we should all be able to have this amazing museum experience growing up and learning. I also recognize that history because, you know, the early, early museums were part of sort of this, this imperialism, this collecting of the world to show that you were civilized, quote unquote, and that everyone else was somehow below you on this linear human narrative
0: if that makes sense. It does. The thing that enters my mind on this is like, okay, so what, you know, unfortunately, like I know a decent amount about how museums work for better or for worse. So the question is like, okay, what, let's say, let's say in a perfect world, Every museum in the world said, yes, we will repatriate every object that was somehow stolen or taken from a different culture back to that culture and their their designated museums. What's the perfect idea of how that will function? Because to me, in, in my mind, that sounds like it's going to become, the world would become more nationalistic. So like, if you want to learn about Sierra Leone, you have to go to Sierra Leone. If you want to mm. learn about, you know. Uh, in Germany you would have to go to Germany because everything would be returned so like basically like I feel like because of the way that I know that museums are very <sighs> selfish in many ways like they they don't want people necessarily to go to other museums they want people to come to <laughs> their museum you know like that's because that's how they fundraise that's how they get their support that's how they get the people through the doors because they want people to come to them they don't want to tell people to go somewhere else so like, how could that work?
1: I think it's going to vary because I think one of the things that needs to be looked at and taken apart and is again, part of that decolonization of museums is having a different way of representing and using and storing the objects that are much more relative. So uh, that includes indigenous worldviews and ways of using art and objects. So. Ideally, these museums would all kind of open up a bit more and not have such calcified borders around the way objects should be used, stored, thought about, displayed, et cetera. So I know that's very, you know, I'm not saying anything specific, but I think that they're all going to look a little bit different if we include other ways of thinking about and speaking about the objects. So at the same time though, we have very, the museum set is very much in place in African museums as well. So you still see some of that colonial mindset apparent because that, that museum was created by the global north, essentially. So some of those frameworks aren't going to go away. And maybe they shouldn't necessarily, but we all at least need to understand how the, those frameworks came about. Because I think now that we can we can use them. I believe in museums. Obviously, I wouldn't still be working in one after 16 years if I didn't believe in them. But at the same time, it has that that violent history. It has that imperialism about it. But I think we can use those spaces to have these really powerful conversations about history and about experience.
0: Well, I mean, like I was recently listening to the Malcolm Gladwell tirade that he did about museums i did have you heard this podcast no oh you should listen to it he it's revisionist history with malcolm gladwell it was he's marvelous i love malcolm gladwell so i am not knocking him at all but boy he went on a tirade about how much he hates museums and how much he hates how majority of their objects are in storage so Mm -hmm. they just buy things to own them but they don't ever exhibit them I mean, like, I grew up at the Smithsonian, again, I don't know why I keep saying that, but I I grew up at the Smithsonian, I think it's like, what, 96% of what the Smithsonian owns is not only not on display, but has never been on display, and will never be on display, because they own so much that they just put into storage that they never put out. Why do they keep getting more? Why why do they need to have that ownership over these things? Why can't they share that? or, Or, you know put it out on exhibition loan to other museums, Mm -hmm. things like this, because like, why do museums feel this need to own everything? Uh, To Mm -hmm. me, this feels like this colonization conversation because like they they sort of want to, they say they want, they want to be the, the arbiter of the sort of the, 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 Well, it's not just taste, though. That it's it's the scholarliness of it too, because they want to be able to say, like, "Oh, you want to research this particular time period? Well, we have the biggest collection in the world of that, and so therefore, everybody has to go to them to research that." Like, it's this desire to be the the keeper of knowledge, keeper of objects, keeper of scholarly research that is questionable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and jealously guarded.
0: Why is that?
1: Well, I mean, if it, it again indicates that assertion of being at the top of the pyramid, of being the best, of being number one, and uh, it comes from that colonial history, from that need. I mean, if you go back, there was that need to get public buy-in for the colonial project. So it's part of that. If you collect the world, you are the most civilized, because civilized, you were the one that articulates what it means and how it should be displayed. And, and you are also the conqueror in some ways, because you were able to, to take all that and put it in one place. And that is, it stems also from those cabinets of curiosity. It was exclusive property of the wealthy to be able to show off that you had been to all these places, that you had collected these other people, essentially.
0: Okay. Well, historically, I am not saying I agree with that, but Ooh. I understand that.
1: Right. So why is it still but like that now?
0: Correct. Yes. yes.
1: So, I mean, but that's why, because that's still there. That's not an easy upbringing to, to kind of turn away from, but that's why decolonization and, and sort of self-reflexivity in the museums is so imperative right now and why it's happening. But it's not, you know, museums, They they do not pivot quickly, they're they, they are glacial, they're like the Titanic, you know, like they can't turn very quickly. So it takes some time. And that's part of the problem in museums too, is that they need to be a bit more nimble and able to, to turn more quickly. So anyway, all of that I think is finally shifting. As you noted earlier, restitution's return of these objects that have for so long been jealously guarded and in these gilded halls of knowledge that is articulated only from this Global North perspective, I think they are going to be moving other places. And I think long-term loans is part of that too. And again, there's more global circulations of things. I think it's shifting. And, and like I said, you, you pointed out that this conversation has been happening for a long time. People have been making requests for these objects to be given back for decades and decades. That's, is, it's a problem and so, even if there's legal issues, the objects are supposedly owned by the public, not necessarily by the museum, depending on the institution. So it makes it, that sounds beautiful, it sounds lovely. We all own those things, but it makes it much harder to give things back, frankly. (laughs) So there's issues with that too. It'll take some time, but I think it's finally starting to happen.
0: Well, but it, it beyond that, part of it that I see as, you know, as an outsider of it all is, is I see also like, let's take the Louvre as an example with the, the Mona Lisa, right? If the Mona Lisa was not at the Louvre, there would be exponential drop in attendance to the Louvre because that's mm-hmm. a, a, a primary draw of why people enter there um so like from a financial standpoint and a marketing standpoint because i mean i can only imagine how much money the louvre makes off of the t-shirts and the umbrellas and the everything with the mona lisa's image on it Uh um so like so i mean it would be a huge financial loss for many of these institutions i mean same thing elgin marbles and in the british museum all these places that these objects that were For lack of a better word taken from some other place Mm -hmm. uh, have now become sort of symbols of that place and they would lose that marketing position as well so like that's a difficult thing to deal with
1: but if we've had such important works of art like national treasures that are owned by these museums in the global north that we've held for a long time we've been the caretakers or whatnot Maybe they'll go back, hopefully they will soon, at least some of them. Wouldn't it be an amazing point in statement to have something like the Mona Lisa, one of our national treasures, or or France's national treasures, go on a global tour? Let the world see it, because not everyone can come to France. I just think that would be, it will never happen, but I think it'd be an amazing, poignant statement about this ownership.
0: Could you imagine being the people who, write the insurance policy <laughs> for the Mona Lisa <laughs> no. to travel the world, like the, the, the sheer price of that insurance would be astronomical.
1: Astronomical. And all the careers that would have to go with it and, and the security all on both sides. Yeah. Like,
0: And all the careers that would be destroyed when it's stolen or, or <laughs> damaged in transport or whatever's going to go wrong with that whole scenario.
1: But it's an important mental exercise. I think is more what I'm getting at.
0: But it would be very interesting because it would open up an entire new industry of like secured art transport. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) You know, like, 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 like a, 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 what is it? Brinks or Wells Fargo that like takes money around to banks and stuff like that. There would be this like armored cars of art with like, you know, armed guards securing it and transporting it. It could could be a really interesting industry.
1: But I, I think, yes, absolutely. But I think us talking about how important this piece is, and oh my God, that would never happen. And can you imagine all the the money, the trouble, security, la, la, la. So like, how can, say, an object that is necessary for a king to be enthroned, you know, in any given context, and I can be specific here, on the African continent, because these kinds of objects exist and were taken. So if you are robbed of the way of installing the next king and, transferring the knowledge from the previous kingdoms and all the ancestors to this current king if you, if that is stolen and living in a museum in the global north can you not relate that to a fucking powerful treasure like the mona lisa and then go oh fuck we should give that back do you think that it would feel much more pressing if we could think about it in terms of that
0: Oh, you do know I'm just being devil's advocate. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, good. I'm just making sure that like, you don't think I like differ in opinion from you.
1: Oh, no, no, mind. no. And I'm asking you, do you do you see how like, I think it would be a really important exercise for us to try to recognize there are parallel fucking treasures that we don't think of in that way. Like, oh, well, you know, it's a tribal thing from the past.
0: Well, that's like imagine like Germany coming into America, stealing the Declaration of Independence yeah. and putting it on on exhibition in Germany. Like, <laughs> the, America would be furious at Germany for that.
1: Yeah, like, so you, no, you know,
0: look. Let's not say Germany. Russia. Let's do Russia because <laughs> Americans hate Russians. So we'll say Russia stole it and put it on display at the what the the Hermitage, right? Mm-hmm. So there we go. I'm trying to throw out sound intellectual and throw out names. Is it working?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I'm okay, very good, impressed.
0: Good. Thank you. I love the hermitage mostly because I love the fact that they have cats there like they they have the the cats that keep the place clean, but anyways so I mean yeah I mean the the whole idea of repatriating i I feel like there needs to be like okay this is the this is the thing I think of don't get me wrong, I'm not against it, but I'm technically like I have no real position on it. I think it's a really interesting I think it's an interesting debate to have and i'm don't know where i fall on it but the reason why i don't know where i fall on it yet is because there's no sort of criteria that sort of quantifies what makes something necessary to be re- repatriated you know like i mean like you gave the example of a let's say a crown in a in a tribe that to pass on the ki- the the ruler of the kingdom to me, yeah, that should be repatriated. Like that, if it's something about the, the, the workings of the, the government or the tribe or whatever it is, then absolutely that should be returned. But like, there's a lot of trinkets, you know, like things that were, let's say buried with Egyptian mummies. Okay. The, it has no bearing on, on modern society. It's not going to affect their ability to run their government and all this. So like does all the Egyptian mummy stuff needs to be returned? So like, where's the point of like, this is needed back in the country versus they just want it.
1: Well, I think that's where someone like me comes in, where different scholars advocating for these art artistic expressions globally can come together and help make that more crystallized. Like what things should go back? What are important? You know, because, I think where it also gets a little bit tricky is to then toss that softball back to say you know Africans you know different communities different stakeholder communities in different countries to say okay well what do you want back so then you're, you're sort of shifting that over to them to make it their problem so I think because we have this museum paradigm that's been in place for so long and us white scholars have been working on it and sort of benefiting you know I have a job I get paid to talk about African art, which is amazing, but I need to also then be an advocate, be, you know, spend my time and my energy helping to work with those communities to say, here's the objects that are super important that we probably should return. And that's, I think, where I see my future as a scholar and museum practitioner is like, yeah, I want to, I want to have these greater conversations, I want to bring in visibility and representation and and talk about those things. But I also want to be the person working with stakeholder communities on the continent to say, yeah, these are the things that they say are most important and should go back. So do you see what I'm saying is I, I don't think that we should only rely on different stakeholder communities to tell us what they want back. That's part of it, but we have to do the hard work and the heavy lifting too. We can't be lazy and just wait for them to come to us because we set up this system. So we understand it.
0: <laughs> right. But I mean, but that's the th- thing to me. There's, there's a, I feel like there's sort of a, if there was, God, it, it's like, it's okay. It's like the Nazi return stuff. like they, they set up a, a series of r- r- sort of rules and regulations saying like, if this happened and, and, or this thing is this important and, or you can prove this or that, then it'll be returned. But if you don't have all that stuff, then it can't, it won't be returned or you won't get reparations or whatever. Like, I feel like everybody's just sort of crying out, going, I want my stuff back, but they're not saying like what stuff or why, or like, I, I feel like if if there was some sort of rules or guidelines that were consistent throughout the globe, so mm-hmm. again, this is not specifically about Africa, that the the whole conversation might go a little bit smoother. Yes. like You know, like it, I feel like it, it's, it's just too broad a stroke saying, I want my stuff back. Yes. Well, stuff but why why do you need it back why would it not be more beneficial to be in the met in order to for some young child to see this piece of whatever greco-roman thing that they then are inspired to go to greece because they saw there you know so like it, there's a certain amount of Elements that I feel like this sh- don't necessarily need to be returned, mm-hmm. but but absolutely there are some that should be returned, and so it's it's trying to create that like what is necessary to return versus what could possibly stay in other regions in order to garner interest in those histories and those regions for people that live in those different places. Yeah, Does that makes
1: yeah, absolutely. And who's articulating that? So I think that's an important question too. So I'm saying it needs, we all need to be coming to the table. We can't shift 100% of that duty to stakeholder communities in different places that have had things taken, you know, under duress, we'll say. So it may have been directly looted or stolen, or it may have been taken during the colonial era when there's a power dynamic in place that made it, you know, (laughs) unequal and unethical. So so anyway, I, I think there are consortiums and different groups of folks that could all come to the table. So you would you would elect some kind of representative from the institution, from the secular communities, from the American or Euro-American institutions that would all come together and go, here's the list, here's the collection, here's what we think, and here's why. It's spreading that work around more evenly. And also everyone can come to the table with the different reasons that things might need to stay or might need to go or might need to be, long-term loans or going different places in the world or staying put or whatever and and there's so many different factors to take into consideration there you know also the stability of the the object can it go to those places or should it just be shifted back to the stakeholder community and left there for good because otherwise it's going to fall apart i mean you never know it really depends but the first step of the institutions that hold most of these objects again the global north need to be transparent about what they've got and publish lists. That's what most people are calling for as the first big step is transparency and publishing the provenance. So the historiography of the objects, when they were taken, when they circulated, how they were sold, who they went through, blah, blah, blah. A lot of times we don't know that for African art. There's a whole other thing there, but we won't go into it. But so if you're publishing your list, then people, and other places in the world can see what is in the institutions because, like you were saying, the Smithsonian has ninety-six percent of their collection in storage. But they are also, and that was the part of that e-museum project that I did, trying to put more and more and more of it online so people can get access to it. Then there's also the problem of whether or not you have access to internet, but that's a whole, whole other issue as well.
0: Well, I mean, that's something that I think about too. Is like, couldn't some of these museums just sort of lie <laughs> like they could just go oh no 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 we didn't steal that that was that was that was just here well like when we opened it was just miraculously here we don't know where it came from like couldn't they just to a certain extent lie because you know it, it, in the museum industry the you know provenance and paperwork and all this kind of stuff is incredibly important and they the, i mean to a certain extent like these things like these things we're talking about right now the there's no paperwork on them you know somebody somebody went into some foreign country they stole it they brought it back and then they basically fenced it through some illicit person and then it, then somebody owned it and then that person that owned it gifted it to a museum and there now it's suddenly in a museum but there's no paperwork on that there's no way to you know take it all the way back so that's a a very difficult nature of the whole provenance and paper trail of of all this looted and stolen stuff
1: mm-hmm. Well, there are certain time periods and certain kinds of objects that even if you don't have a paper trail, you have reasonable enough certainty to say that it should go back. So for, as a recent, recent example, shrine figures from the Igbo area of Nigeria that were taken during the Biafran War, you might not have any paperwork of that, but if it dates to that time period, it was not taken with permission. So Chico Kekeogulu is one of my favorite scholars who very loudly and aggressively attacked, I think it was Christie's that was going to sell these shrine objects and said, you know, you really need to pull these off of that sale, do that provenance research because you would not have shrine figures like this that were taken ethically because they came out during the Biafran War. So that's already a problem. So even if you don't have the paperwork though, he and a lot of us other scholars advocate that that's the kind of thing that should just go back wholesale. Like we don't we don't need something like that that has so much spiritual importance and needs to be in that community and not ethically. So anyway, but the the other thing I wanted to, to say in response to you is museum practitioners are not about that life, the the lying, the like holding it in tightly. I think we're working against a larger institutional infrastructure that is difficult to change and it takes time to change. But we're also a bunch of humans that care. I mean, maybe I'm I'm, a little bit biased because I'm a museum person, but
0: no, no you're like a lot biased. <laughs> but, <it's
1: fine. laughs> but I feel like a lot of us really do care and we want to do the right thing and we're working hard for that. And so I think there's a lot of good people working in a system that is problematic and has it needs to change. And it has reached that point where people question its very existence. And we need to think about that, too. Like, maybe museums need to be dismantled in the way that we know them. Maybe they need to be something entirely different. But how do we get there? So I will say that I think a lot of us do care and do want to do the right thing.
0: I'm sorry if I offended. I didn't no. mean it. that the, the curators were liars or anything like this. I just meant, like, I could imagine a number of museums just sort of like you were saying about transparency, just maybe it's not like an actively lying, but it's sort of more of an, a, a lie of omission mm-hmm. or a passively just simply not offering enough information to be able to go, oh, no, wait, that's ours. You know, kind of thing. like like they just uh, omit things. Uh, I mean, I could see it happening. I'm not saying I have seen it happen.
1: No, it's it's a fear. And it's one, again, I've been talking to a lot of different museums a lot especially with this project and and so i know very much that history and and the different individuals that you have that are pushing against that system and there is a jealous guarding of it or just yeah we won't publish that provenance because then somebody might come and ask for it back there is a bit of that fear but i think that has been dissipated at least somewhat. I, I think it's starting to come apart, but I can't speak to some of those really big institutions that have some of those amazing treasures like the K. Bromley, the you know, places like that. You're just like, hmm, what what's happening internally there? When are they going to publish those lists in a more transparent way? But they also have so fucking much in their storerooms that it's an enormous amount of time and money and staff that need to come together to get that done. And that's where I think it gets a little bit insidious. Because like, if the museum's not going to put in the time, the money, raise the money to do that, then that's, do you see that's, that's a way of, of keeping those close at hand instead of opening it up and being open to that possible situation. Yeah, just, just
0: saying, Hey, we don't have the budget to, to yeah. do all this work. Like, yeah, it's an easy uh, scapegoat thing.
1: Yeah. Because you, you need to put things out on display to get the people in the doors to, to like survive. And especially now with COVID museums are especially at a critical juncture. I mean, a lot of us are folding and, and might fold and it's because we can't have that foot traffic or can't raise that money. So now if you're simply struggling to stay open, are you going to have the time or the money or the effort to document the collections that are not transparently available to people globally? well
0: there's also the issue that sometimes things are uh, sort of misrepresented like it says like uh-huh. oh this is from some place in you know Southeast Asia but in reality it was from northern Russia or whatever like sometimes some things are just simply miscategorized as mm-hmm. well and sort of you know given the wrong provenance
1: yeah. I'm seeing that with the Digital Benin Project. I'm, I'm kind of having a look at thousands of objects around the, the, the world. And yeah, actually that's not Edo, that's Yorba for example, <laughs> like these objects. So then we can help the museums though, make those determinations. But I mean, that's just a little drop in the bucket of the thousands and thousands and thousands of objects that these museums have that are miscategorized or misrepresented or just not at all digitally represented so how would you know to even look for things
0: well yeah because they're misfiled and Mm -hmm. miscategorized i mean you know look at uh, what raiders of the lost ark i mean they lost the ark come on (laughs) come on so okay wait now you've used a term that i've let you go with but i need you to define for me which is which i've never heard before which is global north
1: yeah, I feel like this is a sexy new way <laughs> to talk about Euro-American normativity <laughs> and positionality because it also, it shows how centered we've, we and the global North, we, I say we, because you and I are from North America, have been. So if you look at the map, who's on top, who's in the North, like why, who decided that the map would show Europe and North America at the top and South America and and Africa and all that on the bottom. So if you look at some of the earliest maps of Africa, of contact, it was actually flipped it's the other way around. And if you've ever looked at that map, which I I urge you to try to do that, feel, feel how weird it feels to go, oh wait, Africa's upside down. It's Like, no, that's just your positionality. So I think using terms like global north and global south kind of points to that positionality and points to that normativity that has been created by centering Euro-American experience of the global north. Does that make sense?
0: does and, and basically i'm just asking you to define it for the listeners but also i mean i you know through the context of which you stated it was kind of obvious what you meant but i just <laughs> wanted to make sure that it was perfectly clear that you're basically saying it's sort of a new buzzword that equates to your Euro- european american dominance mm-hmm. or whatever of thing. yep you got yep. it okay you did okay. it
1: in a nutshell better than me yeah.
0: <laughs> well it's 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 just a buzzword. Mm. It'll, it'll pass. Some other new word will come up to describe it. Oh yeah.
1: Scholars and museum practitioners, all of us are subject to trends, right. In, in every way. I, I, I think about that with African arts too. I talk to my students, like, you know how fashion changes, you know, how different things, different words come into popularity and then, you know, they shrink away and new ones come up. So it, that happens in every way. So right now, global north and global south are the sexy terms. But you're right. They will probably change.
0: <laughs> for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a pretty, pretty clear to me what that means. But, of course, I am from the global north, so therefore I perfectly understand it. But I would imagine some people might not grasp exactly what global north means. That's mm-hmm. all. All right. Last two questions I have for you. One is... The first one might take a minute. You're welcome to think about this for a second, okay? What I'm doing is I'm asking all the guests to try to give me three artists that are contemporary practitioners that we should be looking at. Okay. That's it. So like somebody, I mean, I phrase it as like basically some people who are not getting the interest or a claim that they should be, let's say, but you, you think they're of some quality that the people should be giving them a better look?
1: One of my favorite parts of my job is getting to seek out these artists that have not been admitted into those mega exhibitions of the art market, of the of the art world, that I think are really badass and doing super cool things. And I will preface my choices by saying that some of my favorite artists are younger ones and I think they are they're going to inherit the earth obviously the largest population of young people in the world is on the continent so we should be paying attention to young African people because they are inheriting the earth and the youngest coolest most badass artists I've seen are working in photography and fashion and design those are the people I think are doing super cool things and masquerade. Of course, I'm really obsessed with contemporary masquerade. So I will say that Irve Yumbi, I think is pretty well recognized already, but he's someone who I think is making a lot of the points I talked about today in his practice and also working with so-called traditional masquerade artists in Cameroon and and yet also challenging the museum paradigm. So Irve is amazing. Shekou Fofana is the artist I'm working with in Sierra Leone, who is, just a superb designer. And if you think about masquerade as being design, I think that puts you in a different frame as well. He creates different kinds of masquerades for different societies. He also makes them to order for different countries in Africa but also elsewhere in the world. So he is like, he's somebody that is sought after for his masquerade creations. Yeah, he's not ever talked about in contemporary art market. Masquerade doesn't get talked about in contemporary art market unless it's Nick Cave or something, which he's amazing, but he's also looking to that history of Masquerade. Okay, so those are a couple. Alun B is someone who I have worked with closely and I adore, and the way that he's thinking about the world and articulating it has this really positive spin that I think is important, and it inspires me and makes me think like there's, there's hope for all of us. And Sally Robbie Khan is another one that I, I adore. She's a fashion designer, artist. She's making film now. And I think a lot of these younger artists are also resisting that sort of narrow frame that we are setting them in. Like, you know, stay in your lane. If you're a photographer, you're a photographer. If you're a fashion designer, you're a fashion designer. Most of these young artists are like, nah, we're doing all different kinds of things. Like they see the tool bag that's available to them. So they're pulling in all these different kinds of expression, all these different mediums to, to create something really amazing. And then my two favorite designers on the continent, I know I'm doing more than
0: three. It's fine.
1: It's <laughs> Usman Bai. And then, oh God, his, he's from the Ivory Coast. I, I forgot his name. I'll have to get it back to you, I'm so sorry. But there there's some really amazing design coming out of the continent that that we should be paying attention to. So those are, those are my picks for now. And then one final one I'll, I'll throw in there that I adore working with is Soku Mela from South Africa is making film especially in mm. really powerful ways. So he's young and up and coming, and I think he's going to go somewhere. Jean Servet, and yeah, he speaks only French, but he, yeah, he's such, oh God, these are such amazing people. They're so inspiring, and they're so dedicated to what they do and they're I don't know I I think one of the other things that Selly has said to me Selly Robbie Khan, is that they're looking for a seat at the table so this could be of the art world of the fashion design world whatever they have created their own table so I I think that's what also really gets me going with these different artists is like they don't give a fuck what we're doing necessarily they're just doing what they do and doing it amazingly and I that's why I say we should be paying attention to that so, Usman Bai and Jean Servet are my two favorite designers right now working on the continent. And I can send you the, all those names and links to their to their pages.
0: Marvelous. I will put it in the show notes. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on like I'm just so excited about all the work that's being created by these different artists and yet there's still so many that I don't know about. And that's why that's the well, it's part a whole
0: continent. <laughs> it's a whole continent. I mean, that's like saying that's like me saying like, oh, I know every artist in Canada, the United States and Central America. Like, I mean, come on. There's no way that any one person could know all of those people. Yeah. Even with Excel, like yeah. even with a, a, a database or anything like you just can't know them all. Yeah. Well, all right. Last question is advice. Any advice for for in your case it could be for young curators or people interested in the, the the art of the African continent, like anything about that you can give to try and help the next generation.
1: I think taking risks is something that I always advocate for, and that maybe is easier said than done. But I, my family didn't want me to go into anthropology or art for that uh, matter. And yet I felt so strongly about it and felt inspired by it that I was like, well, I don't care if the jobs aren't going to come or if I'm never going to make much money, which by the way, we don't make that much money as curators, FYI. I, I'd say just take that risk, just go for it. If it inspires you, that passion is going to feed into what you do. And that will make you feel fulfilled more than necessarily a higher paycheck. And if you're really putting your energy and your passion into something, I, I like to hope, and maybe I'm just too you know naive, but it has happened for me, you know it comes the, the success will follow if you follow your heart and you follow the things that really inspire you and you think are going to make a difference. So take risks is one of my biggest ones, like take the leap, do it, no matter what other people say. <laughs>
0: And I, I also have the thing that like understand that if you're going into the arts, it's a lifelong uh, type of a endeavor. It's not you're not going to be the amount of people who are like art stars at a very young age is extremely rare. Yeah. So like it's a long it's the you know it's a long con basically. Like so like do not think it's going to be a fast growth and and all that. It's going to take time. It's going to take decades to mm-hmm. get to some level of expertise in whatever it is you choose in the arts
1: exactly (laughs) i think I, i had another one which was listen i think you know as much as i say don't listen to those people and take the risks i also when you know when you're actually in that moment where you're doing these interviews or working with different communities or thinking about the arts you have to listen to the other viewpoints to what people want so out of their museum experience or out of restitutions. So, so I think listening carefully and closely and opening yourself up to different points of view and different meaningful ways of finding, I don't know, like resonances with one another, finding common ground, I think is really, really important. You can't find common ground if you don't open your ears and listen. So sometimes you have to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and I I have to remember to do that myself, too, Is is like you know, if everyone says you're drunk, you should probably sit down. So sit for a minute.
0: Oh, I, I never listen to that. Anytime somebody says you're drunk, I'm like, <laughs> I need another drink. <laughs>
1: no. Yeah. So those are, those are mine. And I do remember that you asked Don, my husband, about that. So I, I knew that that was coming, but I actually forgot to think about it. But so those are, I pulled those out of my ass, but I hope they work. <laughs>
0: yes I mean it's advice so like it's something that people including myself should be trying to listen to I mean it's hard the the point of like you know do your own thing and don't listen to other people but be able to listen to other people I mean there's still the point of like it's one of those stupid things like you need to know how the system is working in order to learn how to work outside the system oh yeah so, like, if you don't want to follow you but it, it, you can't just say i don't want to follow your system you have to you do have to understand what they're doing in order to understand how best to not be part of it um so like it's a it's like it's like my my parents used to always say like it's easier to turn a boat if you're on the boat <laughs> instead of being outside the boat and wanting to turn the boat yeah. so like you do to a certain extent there's a little bit of like knowing and working a little bit in the system in order to be more active in the the change of it
1: yeah no i completely agree with that it's like you have to see the matrix in order to change it or, or make any differences so correct yeah yeah, yeah i love that Another
0: great movie reference.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a more fun way of saying seeing your positionality, but yeah.
0: That, I'm sorry. What was that?
1: It's a more fun way of of saying seeing that positionality, seeing the way the world is constructed in, around, and for you. You know, you have to recognize that before you can go in and try to change it or subvert it.
0: Well, it's like as a teacher, I always tell the students like you have to learn how to do it right in order to understand how and why to do it wrong.
1: Mm. Ooh. Do I like that? I, I I might borrow that.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the old, the other say what's the other one? Uh, learn the box so that you can think figure out how to work outside the box.
1: Yeah, see the matrix so you can take it apart.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, similar. Yeah. Oh, I love it.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.